Last week, I offered six reasons that we should meet as a church against the executive order of our governor. How thankful we are that that did not need to happen. Lord willing, next Lord's Day, a week from today, we will be able to gather in person, certainly with strict limitations, but we look forward to being in person. As I was thinking about this, I, I think it's right to say that in the history of Eden Baptist Church, we have never gathered under more heavy opposition from our world. Now, the opposition that we face is light compared to the persecuted brothers and sisters that we know throughout the world. Yet we have never faced such pointed opposition to the gathering of our church. Lobbying for the freedom to reopen churches, several faith leaders noted the inconsistency of the governor reopening Minnesota's largest candy store while shuttering churches. A Star Tribune columnist wrote sarcastically, surely, church leaders argued, houses of worship are more essential to Minnesota than the largest candy store. She's setting up this jab. Even though staying home from church never killed anybody, even though rushing back to church too soon just might. Well, she certainly relished the clever riff on the keyboard there, but it also revealed the foundation of her ridicule. It is this, churches are hypocritical and they are irrelevant. Her argument, of course, is irrational. It's, is it not equally true that staying home from the candy store never killed anyone? I guess it depends on how badly you need chocolate. But would not rushing back to the candy store too soon just as likely kill someone? Or should we say just as likely not? For that matter, could not a Sunday church attender contract the virus while shopping at the candy store on Saturday afternoon? It's really irrational argument. And we ask the question in the light of many opposition, uh, many in opposition, are churches little more than sealed death traps where science deniers gather to tempt fate? Church family, this is not rational thought. This is opposition. It is opposition driven by something that runs much deeper than health concerns. Well, this opposition, in fact, has grown far more serious than finger-wagging columnists, has it not? Arsonists have been busy these days, converting tragedy into more tragedy, turning injustice into more injustice, and expanding the evil of the few to the evil of large crowds. But in a one-sided affair, arsonists burned down a church building in Mississippi recently after the congregation peacefully and safely met against another mayor's discriminatory order. Spray painted on that church's parking lot was this message, bet you stay home now, you hypocrites. And I ask, why hypocrites? It's the same theme as sounded by the columnist in a different way, in a far more evil way, but it's really just the same theme. Pro-life Christians are choosing to kill people by gathering as churches. 
And we could add to these irrational charges a growing list of alarming cases in which churches are being opposed in discriminatory and even threatening ways, threatening to be shut down permanently. There's a light side to this opposition. People who believe the church is irrelevant and therefore should remain closed. But brothers and sisters, there is also a darker side to this opposition, and I think it's crucial for us to face this biblically. There is a cosmic resistance to the gathering of God's people, a demonic attack against everything the church was redeemed to pursue in assembly. We must know this truth and we must respond rightly to it. And to this end, we find light in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. Ephesians, chapter 6. If you would find that passage in the scriptures. He, Ephesians, chapter 6. And we'll read at verse 10. Ephesians, chapter 6, and verse 10. The apostle writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We need to stop there for just for a moment, lest we get off on the wrong track immediately. It is not be a strong person. That's not what he's saying, but be strengthened in the Lord. The verb is actually passive in the Greek form. The idea is find your strength for life in the strength that Jesus gives to his people. This passive sense we can in fact see here in the second part of the verse that it is in the strength of the Lord, the strength belonging to the Lord, the strength that comes from Him. So find your strength for life in the strength that Jesus supplies to His people. What do you mean, Paul? How can we be empowered by Christ's strength? Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. So be strengthened by the strength that God supplies and then put on his armor. We'll get into what that means in a moment, but put on the whole armor of God, I think should be read in the context of the entire book. The book supplies the framework for this statement. Remembering back to chapter 1, which teaches that Jesus' death to redeem us from sin, that by his resurrection power, conquering death, Jesus now reigns supreme. That leads to verse 21 of chapter 1. He reigns far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So that verse 22 of that first chapter, in this resurrection power, all things are now under his feet and he is the head of his church. So think of this then, as we think by way of application, as we think by way of the point of the book, it is from this position of power that Jesus supplies to his people spiritual strength. This risen one, this reigning one, this one under whose feet all things now exist. Paul refers then to this supply of strength from this risen Christ as armor. Notice verse 11 again, put on the whole armor of God, and then drop down to verse 13 and note the connection there. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. 
So he says, put on the armor of God, take up the armor of God. And that means then in verses 14 through 18, he's describing what the armor is. Now he's using obviously an illustration here of a, a Roman soldier's armor. He doesn't mean literally armor, but what does he mean? Verses 14 through 18 define it. That armor is truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, scripture, and all of it saturated with prayer. So let's consider this for a moment. The unbeliever possesses none of these spiritual provisions from God. But in our relationship with Christ, in the salvation that he has worked in us, chapters 1 and chapters 2, we as the followers of Christ receive these blessings. We can pursue these blessings. In fact, as followers of Christ, we gather together in order to strap on this armor, to deepen our strength giving hold as a church on truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, scripture, and prayer. This is what we're pursuing as we gather together as a church, to put on this armor, to be equipped with this provision that comes from Christ alone and only to his people. Well, we might ask at this point, why call these aspects of the new life armor? put on the armor of God. Why use this illustration? Verse 11 continues, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Satan and his countless minions scheme to ruin the faith of God's people. Satan battles against us to destroy truth and righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, scripture, prayer, the Christian life. He battles against those very provisions. So Paul emphasizes this idea then in verse 12, continuing verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, this realm of spiritual darkness in which we live, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. Let's pick this verse apart just for a few moments. But rulers, authorities, cosmic power, spiritual forces of evil. Notice that none of them is what we could classify as flesh and blood. So Paul is not speaking here about human authorities. The opposition he's speaking to here is demonic in its nature. I believe Paul is piling up synonyms here for the demonic realm. If I referred to Eden Baptist Church as the church, the people of God, the saints, the redeemed of the Lord, you would not hear that list and say, oh, he's talking about the church in various ranks and order of people. No, there wouldn't be separate ranks of believers, just synonyms of how we might speak of the church. I think it's likely that that's what Paul is doing here. Rather than giving us some specific order of demonic uh, authorities, he's just piling up these words to say, Christian, there's a lot against you. 
He's simply emphasizing the vast demonic realm that assaults God's people and wants to bring down the church of Jesus Christ. And notice that these not of flesh and blood beings operate in the heavenly places. That doesn't mean that they're isolated to heaven in the presence of God. The heavenly places, as used in this context, is a reference to the spirit realm where angels minister and where demons tempt. So where angels minister and demons tempt, in that realm is where they operate. In other words, you don't see them physically, but they are there, they are operative in the spiritual realm. So let's apply for just a few moments to our life and to our situation. And we could talk on this matter all day by way of application, but let me just draw out a few ideas that come to mind. The first is that we must be awake to the reality of this battle. We must know that it is there and we are informed by revelation here that it is there. We must then secondly believe that it is there. That is to not simply know the facts about it, but to, to believe that they, this is really the attack that we are receiving. And then to act accordingly, to respond in a way that is biblical and faithful to Christ. We must be awake to the reality of this battle. Secondly, we must see the true nature of this battle. A slight variation on that theme in the first point, but to see the true nature of this battle, we need to be careful here. I don't want to over-apply, but I believe that we are right to conclude that the opposition we face against meeting as a church runs much deeper than the people who hinder us. Our battle is not against a columnist. It's not against an arsonist. Nor is our battle necessarily against people who even know that they are resisting Christ. We need to give them that break. Our battle is against demonic forces working to weaken our faith and destroy Christ's church by any means possible. So let's think of it again. We reviewed a little bit shorter list a couple of weeks ago, but let's think of it again. Jesus gave life to the church that we might greet one another physically, Romans 16, 16. That we might encourage and edify one another in close conversation, Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, and Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 that we would sing his praises with one voice, Colossians 3.16, that we would collect our gifts on the Lord's day in worship, 1 Corinthians 16.1 and 2. He saved us that we might hear the teaching and the preaching proclamation of his word in community, 1 Timothy 4.13, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. So putting this together with our current situation, this passage instructs us that Satan is driving hard to destroy all of that in our church. Nothing would make him happier than to see us never meet again. But our strength, we're taught here, comes from the Lord, who we know ordained the trials that we are now facing. We must not then cower. We must not retreat 
but find strength in Christ to actively recapture the life he saved us to live together. There's a battle that's going on here. A battle we're recognizing from without, but now drawing attention to the fact that we must engage this battle ourselves, taking on the armor of God and resisting this attack. Our calling, in a word, is to push back against the darkness, against those who rage against Christ in the spirit realm and many times find voices in the human realm to intimidate us, to oppose us, to ridicule us. May we rejoice as Jesus taught us to. But to do this, to push back against the darkness, to recapture the life of the church, to give ourselves to that, not sitting in a corner cowering, being fearful, I think it's right for me to say, number three, that we must accept the risk of pushing back against the darkness. Now, there's a risk there as we witness for Christ, as we stand against people in the world. But I, I speak now, in part, just of the risk of coming together as a church. Should we do this? Should we side with churches that have stated they'll not meet until 2021 or later? Let me say that virtually every freedom we enjoy in this world is hardwired with risk. To drive a car is to accept the risk of death. We get used to it, we don't think about it, but we're reminded from time to time tragically and horrifically that driving a car is a tremendous risk. Very few of us in this church have decided then to walk everywhere. I have a son that lives in St. Paul and 35E takes us from our town up to his home at 70 miles an hour. I'm taking a risk to travel that fast in a car, but I could make the decision to take other roads and maybe minus the bridge across the river, I could keep my speed at 35 or 40 miles an hour the entire way to his home in St. Paul. I don't do that. I take the risk of driving on the freeway to get there more rapidly. And again, this is just risk with which we have become comfortable. Now, we must, of course, never put God to the test to tempt the odds, so to speak. And we're putting in place protocols that are hopefully helping to some degree to help us not just be cavalier in our coming back together. But for most of us, sadly, not all of us, but for most of us, the risk of attending church with precautions is quite reasonable. In fact, I would suggest that it's just as likely that we would die in a car accident is die from COVID-19. That could change. Our world is changing very rapidly and we would need to respond differently. But where things, where things stand, I think it's a reasonable risk for us to come back to fight against the darkness of Satan and to continue to arm ourselves with the works of God and the provision of his grace in Christ. In fact, we find historically the people who fix their eyes on loving others, fix their eyes on advancing the health of Jesus' church, are all known 
to have taken on some fairly significant risks in their lives. The goal, I think, for us is to focus forward, to focus forward on serving Christ, to focus outward on loving others. And so then, number four, to pursue loving unity against the divisions that Satan would love to create. The time limits me from going into this idea at any great length, but we have the, the attack of Satan from outside, but there is also the gleeful attack of the demonic from inside. That is how we as a church can fall into disunity and therefore into great ill health. This is a concern and it should be a caution. In Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 and following, we find this rich discussion of how Jesus has unified the church across that amazingly difficult divide of Jew and Gentile. Jesus did this. The greatest divide that human history has ever known was bridged by Christ and his redemptive power. How much more then should we as Gentiles seek unity and work together in this project? And we will do so with differing opinions. I'm concerned about those opinions, not majorly concerned. Eden Baptist Church is a mature and growing church. And I know that we love one another and we will give ourselves to one another. But as we face those differing opinions, we are not looking to set forth a vast array of rules and regulations. But rather we are trusting everyone as a church to come in knowing that we will have differences of opinion and allowing each one to pursue what their conscience is telling them. To be sensitive to your conscience. If that leads you to do one thing over another, if it leads you to disagree with someone in the way that they are responding to these trials or not responding, may we come in love. May we come in deference toward one another. May we come in faithfulness to follow our conscience, to love one another, to be gracious and receptive and welcoming even to those with whom we disagree. Lovingly, gently receiving each other. We might even take a word from James chapter 1 and verse 19 here that we would all in this pandemic and how the government is responding to it and how the nations of the world are responding to it, that we would be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. But may that just be multiplied over and over as we think about how to relate to one another. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to wrath. That is, I think in this context, quick to hear what someone else says, not fast to speak our opinion and to pontificate on what we know. We don't know much, not one of us, but may we be then slow to anger, loving, patient, gentle, and kind. And may we also, as we come together, realize that there are going to be some significant frustrations that we have to face as a church. We need patient endurance as we work our way back to full operation. Just put this one little picture in your mind. There is a member of our church that really longs to be with the assembly. 
and has been anticipating this time. Things at home, the videos aren't working, things aren't developing as well as they'd like, and maybe they're in isolation and they're saying, I really want to come back to the assembly. And they come back and find that their first service back is in the all-purpose room. Maybe without video, if that doesn't work for us. And just sitting in the all-purpose room, listening to the sound, it could be very frustrating, very disappointing. We have to be prepared for these types of things. And I know that we will be as a church. I know of your grace. I know of your deference to one another. I see it time and time again. And I know that we'll work together to make these things work out as effectively as possible. But I do want to just prepare us that there will be some glitches. We have labored very hard to try to assemble people in this space in years past in an effective way to serve those that attend our assembly. Some of that's going to have to be reworked and we're going to be relearning. So please be patient with ushers. Ushers, be patient with people. And as we work together, as we find the right seating and the right situation, may we just endure this challenge. In fact, in some, on, on some level, we are like the patient who's coming out of a very difficult bout with the flu. We've been drained, we've been weakened, and we're coming back. We have to not push too hard to come back to full normal activity, but we need to nurture our bodies back into shape and so slowly to come back to full health. But Eden Baptist Church, we can do this. We can do this in the strength of the risen Christ under whose feet is all authority in this world, under whose feet are all who would oppose him. He will give us strength to this end. Our world has no desire for us to gather, no desire for us to grow strong in Christ together, no desire for us to put on the armor of God. Satan opposes everything we seek to do to honor Christ and to edify his body. But by the grace of the risen Christ, may he bring us back together again to proclaim his name with loud praises to feed on his word as a body, to pray, to edify one another in welcoming love. May God empower us to actually grow stronger through this pandemic, not weaker. We've been weakened in a sense, like a sick patient, but may he bring us back to be stronger because of our trial. And may he find us praying at all times in the spirit, praying for the glory of his name, for the good of his people, for the salvation of this dying world that is under the power of darkness. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. But Jesus Christ uses weak vessels to shine the light of his truth in a dark world. May he equip us to do that in increasing ways in the days to come by his grace and for his glory.